0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in 1 Timothy. In this audio, I'm going to cover verses 12 through 20, and we will entitle this audio, Christ Came to Save Sinners. Now, there's a little warning against false teaching at Ephesus to Timothy because that is the basic theme of Paul's letters to Timothy, is to deal with heretics in the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy 1, which is our context, we see Paul warning Timothy against false teachers. That's what, in in fact, I entitled that audio, Paul Warns Against False Teaching. So we start now in verses 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Timothy 1. Paul says this, "...I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man." But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now Paul says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord in verse 12, who has strengthened me. Anybody that wants to go into the ministry, you better be strengthened first because it's a minefield out there. It's a war out there. If the devil doesn't come after you, your flesh will come after you. Your fellow Christians might come after you. It took a lot of strength for Paul to do what he had to do, all the persecution he underwent, the shipwrecks, the fastings, the involuntary stretches of time where he didn't have food, the sleepless nights, the watchings. But Paul says that Christ strengthens him. Why? Because he considered me faithful. God's not going to faith- strengthen somebody that's not faithful. you got to prove yourself faithful in the ministry, then he'll give you strength. God considered Paul faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Now, that's the ministry. That's the ministry of Christ. He's comparing his ministry with the so-called ministry of the false teachers. This is the true ministry. Now, that's a perfectly legitimate phrase, the ministry. But modern-day ministers of the gospel have abused this, in my humble opinion. You hear people talk going around saying, the ministry. I'm in the ministry. As if these people were anointed to the high priesthood of Israel. I'm in the ministry. And you, my friend, are a lowly laity and don't tell me what to do this is especially true in the charismatic movement i speak from experience i know about that because i was in it these people are aggravating a clergy laity distinction that does not exist in the bible the leaders in the new testament church were brothers they were not big shots but nonetheless paul is he's a humble man he's not gonna do that ministry just another word for work he's appointed me to the work the work of going around evangelizing and starting churches Verse 13, one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, which, of course, shows the radical change that Jesus did in him, and thus kind of increases his cred, right? Because if God can change somebody like Paul, he can change anybody. Now, Paul says he was formerly a persecutor. I was surprised how many verses actually point that out. I collected them here for you, and I'm going to read them to you. There's six. Acts seven fifty-seven through 58. They, that's the screaming Jewish mob, yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together mis- rushed against him. That's Stephen, the first martyr. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Paul, Saul was there, he was called Saul then, and he was perfectly approving of this judicial murder of this young Christian convert, Stephen, Acts 8, 3. Saul, however, that's Paul, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Acts 9, 1 and 2. Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So now he was using judicial process to wreak vengeance upon the saints of the Lord. Another verse showing Paul's... Previous persecution of the of the churches in Acts 22 verses 3 through 4, he continued, "I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail. He didn't spare the women. He persecuted them all the way to the death." which means that he would turn them over to the courts, and he wanted them to execute a death penalty on them. Now, I know there's a question about whether Jewish courts could do that. I remember reading a big discussion of this on the Internet, so I'm not exactly sure what Paul means when he says, I persecuted this way to the death. I've read somewhere that the Roman authorities might have turned over death penalty cases in the case of blasphemy. They wanted to stay out of that, but they would allow to execute for blasphemy. Then I read other places where they, they didn't do that, so I'm not sure what Paul meant by this, but let's... We can know this. He meant business. He was coming after the church. He said this before the Jerusalem mob after the third journey when he went back to the city. Then we go to Acts 26, 9-11. through This is before one of the Jewish officers. I forgot which one. In Caesarea, I believe it was. In fact, I myself i am convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. Well, that could ref- be referring to Stephen's death. We know at least that was done. Whether it was judicially proper or not, according to the Romans, is one thing that's debated. But he agreed when Stephen was put to death. And he says, when they were put to death, it sounds like there was more than one. And all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme, denounce Christ. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even in foreign cities. Now, folks, that's a world-class persecutor. And now he's a world-class apostle and evangelist. 1 Corinthians fifteen nine, Paul says this, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is quite mindful of his checkered past. Philippians 3, 5, and 6. Paul says concerning himself, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He was a world-class rabbi, a world-class Pharisee, a world-class persecutor, and full of iniquity up to his eyeballs. He also says in verse 13, and this is in the Homer christian Study Bible translation, it says he was an arrogant man. Well, that's interesting. That word arrogant is translated a whole bunch of different ways in the English translations. The NIV, the New American Standard Bible, the Lexham English Bible, translate that as violent. Paul says he was a violent man. Then our new revised version says that Paul was a man of violence. That seems to be the majority opinion. The ESV in the New King James calls, Paul calls himself an insolent man, which is not quite as strong as violent. The KGV says Paul was an injurious man, which, who? what does that mean? The Young's Literal Translation says he was an insulting man. So you see, the Greek word, obviously, I don't know what the Greek word is, but it's obviously hard to translate into English. So let's just just say violent is what he was, or at least arrogant. Arrogant and violent. Apparently the Greek word has shades of meaning that overlap here. So arrogant man, violent man, he was a nasty son of a gun. That's what Paul was. But, in verse 13, I received mercy. Why? Because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. Now that's just, God is a, is just in his judgments, just like human judges are, and the human law is, when somebody acts in ignorance, ignorance of the law is no excuse, and you're still punished, but the penalty is mitigated by your ignorance, and that's what happened with Paul here, at least it seems to be, I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. He thought he was doing right, but he was wrong. So we have two options here as to what this means when Paul says he was operating out of ignorance. The first option is that Paul was trying to extenuate his sin. In other words, trying to mitigate his sin. I guess you would put it that way. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown puts it, ignorance does not in itself deserve pardon, but it is a less culpable cause of unbelief than pride and willful hardening of oneself against the truth. And that's true. Let's say somebody breaks in your house and it's, and it's say it's one of your friends and you accidentally shoot him. Well, you didn't mean to shoot him. But you did shoot him, so you're still guilty. But your punishment is you're guilty of a lesser crime than if you'd have deliberately gone out and stalked somebody and tried to plug them with premeditated murder. Here's an example of this idea of ignorance. Well, how about when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? Jesus is saying that these people didn't realize they were killing the Messiah. They thought they were killing a blasphemer, blasphemer so please go easy on them, which God didn't really answer that prayer because He destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 because of their sin in killing the Messiah but Jesus did say that they don't know what they're doing John 9:41 Jesus said if you were blind Jesus told them you wouldn't have sin but now that you say we see your sin remains in other words if you know if you willfully sin knowing that you're sinning that is worse than if you sin in ignorance there is a distinction and so Paul here was saying that he he's he's trying to extenuate attenuate his sin a little bit by saying hey you know I didn't really know what I was doing But now John Gill says that the exact opposite is true. He says that Paul was trying to show his sin was worse because he acted in ignorance, because he was a poor, blind, ignorant bigot who didn't bother to exercise himself to find out what the truth was about Jesus. Here's what Gill says, quote, when there are means of knowledge and these are not attended to and when persons are not open to conviction and reject the fullest evidence, which was the case here, therefore Paul is worthy of more condemnation because he acted in ignorance because he was blind and stupid and bigoted and didn't try to find out the truth. The problem with that is is that Paul says, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance. If Gil was right in, as, in saying that the ignorance was, was uh, deserving of harsher punishment, then the, then the verse would read like this, but I received mercy even though I acted out of bigoted in- ignorance. And unbelief. So I don't think Gil's right. I did look up the because. It was haughty, which means because of since. I don't know how where he gets. I don't know how Gil comes up with that. So we're going to assume that Paul acted out of ignorance and and God gave him a little bit of slack because of that, a little bit of mercy. I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And then in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that in Christ Jesus overflowed, took a lot of grace. Forgive Paul for all the stuff that he did. He received grace. He didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit like the Pharisees did. He repented of his hardness of heart, and the grace overflowed. Now, what else overflowed beside the grace of our Lord? Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, those things also overflowed, faith and love. And whenever you see faith, you have to decide whether it's the objective faith or subjective use of the word. Is it the faithfulness of God to his Son overflowed? Because of the mercy shown to Paul, the faithfulness of God to his son, probably not. How about the faithfulness of God to Paul? The grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faithfulness of God to me. Or it could be along with the belief and trust I have in God. That overflowed. And that's the normal subjective way of taking it. And I think that's the way we should take it here. How about the objective sense? The Christian faith, the faith of the gospel. So the Christian faith overflows because the grace of our Lord overflowed? I don't think so. We'll just take this. Paul's faith, his subjective trust and belief in God and in Jesus overflowed. God's grace overflowed and then Paul's trust and belief in Jesus overflowed. And love. Is that love of Jesus for Paul or Paul's love for Jesus? I don't know. Probably both. We move now to First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And here's the saying, quote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, unquote, and I am the worst of them. All right, it's a trustworthy saying. There are four other other trustworthy statements in the pastoral epistles. Here's one in 1 Timothy 3.1, this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to be an overseer who desires a noble work. 1 Timothy 4, 8, and 9, For the training of the body has a limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. 2 Timothy 2:11. This saying is trustworthy, for we have died with him, we will also live with him. Titus 3, 7-8, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. So there were sayings going around. I suspect it's because they didn't have, they only had pieces of the written scripture back then, and so they would say things orally, and it would get crystal. These sayings, these teachings, would get crystallized into sayings that they would repeat over and over again, and so they got to be common coin in the Christian church. Well, this sort of trustworthy say. Saying was this: Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now see, that's basic gospel, is it not? So Paul quotes that, and then he says, "I'm the worst of them." Now he says that saying said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Notice it's to save sinners, not to condemn sinners. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. He said that in John 3:17 through 18. For, or John said it: For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So Jesus didn't need to condemn anybody. They were already condemned when he came, and then he saves them, saves the sheep, saves the elect. Now Paul says here, I am the worst of them, worst of the sinners that Jesus came into the world to save. I am the worst of them. Now, many people will say, see there, it's all right to say, oh, I'm a sinner. I'm just a worm. I'm a sinner saved by grace and all these things that denigrate what the Scripture actually says about Christians, which is that they're saints. Over 50 times in the New Testament calls people saints, including people like the Corinthians who probably didn't deserve the term, but he still called them that, called them brothers and saints. We are called righteous. We're called adopted sons of God. We are born again by the incorruptible seed of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Well, if we're all of that, our old man is dead. The old man was the sinful man, the sinner, and he's dead, and the new man is alive. We're walking in a new way. I mean, on and on and on it goes about who we are in Christ. And then here Paul says, I'm a sinner. Isn't that sort of a contradiction? Well, I think it is. Here's the answer. I'll give you an example to prove this. Let's say that Alex Rodriguez, the former home run hitting all-star who last played for the New York Yankees, let's say he gets up and announces, I am the worst jerk in the history of baseball. Now, he's obviously referring to his past. Let's say he's apologized for his performance-enhancing drugs and the way he was just a basic horse's ass and nobody liked him. And he says, you know, I'm the worst jerk in the history of baseball. But now... I've seen the error of my ways, and I repent, and I, he doesn't use the word repent, but I'm so sorry for what I did. But I'm the worst jerk there's ever been. He uses the present tense about who he is, but he's referring to the past. That's what Paul's doing here. he's He is not a sinner like he was when he was a violent persecutor of the church. So please, let's don't use that verse to go around saying, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. All of this comes, from, I know, how I used to call myself a worm too, because I was a Presbyterian and Presbyterian theologians love to do that. Talk about you're a sinner. You got to work and you got to strive to get past your sin. No, you need to let Jesus do the working and striving to take care of your sinful acts, which are not indicative of who you really are. Your sinful acts are unnatural to your newborn state, your new creation state. I can speak a little bit of Chinese. That doesn't make me Chinese. And sure, a born again adopted son of God can sin. Sure, he can. But that doesn't make him a sinner by nature, by essence. It makes him doing sins that are not natural to him in his newborn state. And I suspect that's why Christians, when they sin, a lot of times they feel so guilty. Because it, it's not who they are. We go to 1 Timothy 1.16, But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus, might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. I received mercy for what reason? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In verse 15. Or it could be saying because I am the worst of these sinners and for that reason I needed a lot of mercy and, and I got it. I received mercy for this reason that I was the worst of sinners. In other words, I needed mercy and I got it. Or it could be just because Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. For that reason I received mercy. Whatever reason he's talking about, he received mercy so that in me the worst of them, the worst of sinners. Again, he's talking about the past now. He was the worst of sinners in the past. He was a violent persecutor of the church. Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience. In other words, for patience is endurance. Jesus put up with Paul's persecution of his sheep in the church. Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. What Paul is trying to say here is, look, if Jesus can forgive a violent persecutor like me, by golly, he can forgive you too. His mercy is a lot bigger than we think it is. So Paul is being used as an example of God's mercy. Now this idea of being used as an example is a big concept with Paul and the other apostles. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul is, Paul is saying, use me as an example. First Peter 5, 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you. As Peter writes to certain elders he's writing to, he says, Be examples to the flock. Hold yourself up as a model, as an example, as a pattern. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 7. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. That which is passed down from Paul to the churches, follow that tradition, live according to that tradition. Verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 3. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. Use Paul as a model, as an example, as a pattern. Second Thessalonians three nine. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it, i. e. worked with our hands, to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. So that's what we should we should model our Christianity before our young converts and before our family. That does more than there is nothing worse than living an ungodly life and talking about how Christian you are. I know a guy that did this for to a young girl, his girlfriend, a young Chinese college student in China and I got to know that student pretty good because she was my tour guide and translator for a while and she would tell me about her Christian boyfriend getting drunk going out living with her in the same apartment although they didn't get it on but they were still you know they were in the same apartment and basically acting like an idiot and he would have Bible studies every Sunday well what kind of an example is that and to this day, she's not safe. She finally told me to quit talking to her about the faith. She didn't want to hear anymore, which is really sad. I'll give you another example. When I was teaching in South Carolina in a college, there was, I had a, a Christian colleague that was in my department, and he had bought in a, a small apartment building, and he was renting it out. And he rented it out to a Christian guy, and he was cleaning out the apartment, and he goes over there and finds cond- he finds his Bibles strewn around, and he found condoms all over the room. And just by coincidence, a young Chinese student of mine was a former student was working at the University of South Carolina, which is about what I don't know fifty sixty miles away. And one of her colleagues was the girlfriend that was living in that apartment. She was a Christian, and she was trying to witness to my Chinese student and. All my Chinese students can say, "Oh, she's living, she's living with a boyfriend," and I'm thinking, you know, this is disgusting. You know, American Christianity is absolutely disgusting. And that Chinese woman, to this day, that was 20 years ago, she is still not a Christian. You know, you give people examples like that, negative role models, you will cause people to stumble. And it's better that you have a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the ocean. You ain't going to tread water with a millstone around your neck. And Christians who go out and live like hell and then try to take their Bible and witness to people ought to be ashamed of themselves. Well, as negative examples are bad, positive examples are good. You live a godly life and people will respect that. I remember one time in China, Somebody I forgot who it was said they wanted to be married like my wife and I, and I said, well, I didn't know, you know, I didn't notice what they were talking. I didn't know what they were talking about. We were just living our normal lives, and she said we we wanted a happy marriage. Now they they you know in China there's so many unhappy marriages, unhappy, oh it's horrible, just like it is in America, and so they saw something they wanted to imitate, and I had not done one teaching on marriage. So there's there's an example. You got to show examples to people. First Timothy one seventeen. Paul continues, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the King here is God, it's not Jesus, because in the verse Paul mentions the only God. This, by the way, is probably some kind of a saying that was going through the church too. It doesn't say it is, but it sounds like it. Maybe not, I don't know. Now to the King God, eternal, that means there is never a time when he was not, there never will be a time when he is not. He always existed. He existed before time, during time, and after time, if indeed time stops. There's a debate about that in the future state, whether time still keeps going on. How can you have motion if there's no time? I don't know, but God is forever. He is immortal. That means he never dies. He's invisible. The idea that God is invisible, of course, cuts mightily against paganism because pagans love to have visible idols so they can look at, so they can worship. But our God is invisible. Here's some scriptures. 1 Timothy 6.16, the only one who has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. No one has seen him or can see him. To him be honor and eternal might. Amen. Here's another scripture in Exodus 33 20, but he answered, you cannot see my face. This is God answering. You cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. John 1 18. No one has ever seen God. Colossians 1 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 11:27. 27. By faith, he left Egypt behind That's Abraham, not being afraid of the king's anger For Moses, persevered at I'm sorry, not Abraham, it's Moses. For Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. So our God is the invisible God. He's not a God you can see. That's why Jesus had to come. So if you want to see what God's like, look at Jesus. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, before we get there, let's look at this phrase, the only God. Romans 16, 27 says this. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ to him be the glory forever, amen. The wise is left out here in our version Homer Christian Study Bible. However, some manuscripts have it here. It's it's definitely in Romans sixteen twenty seven, but here in first 1 Timothy 1.17, it's not in every manuscript. Let me give you a quote from Barnes. The word wise is missing in many manuscripts, and in some editions of the New Testament, it is not easy to determine as to the genuineness of the reading. The sense is not materially affected, whichever view be adopted. So in other words, it doesn't really matter because God is wise. And we can go to Romans 16 to prove that he's wise. That's a minor point. He's the only God, which means that idolatry is precluded from our worship of him as Christians. We're not polytheist. To this God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The excellent, splendid, effulgent characteristics of God are displayed to the universe. That's my saying here. That's how I would categorize that. One other comment about the only God. Is that God the Father, the first person of the Trinity? Or is that God the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not clear here. If you want to say it's God the Father, you could go to Romans sixteen twenty-seven which says to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, where there's the distinction between God and Jesus Christ, showing that there in Romans sixteen twenty-seven, God is the first person of the Trinity, not the whole Trinity. Another minor point, but I just thought I'd mention it. We go now to verse 18, 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 and 19. Paul continues, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by them you may strongly engage in battle. Having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. Now, Timothy has spent the first 17 verses showing himself as an example to Timothy. He's talked about how he was a horrible persecutor of the church and how God showed him grace and so forth. Now he turns to his main point, which is Timothy's instruction. He, instruction, he instructs him as a son. So before giving didactic instructions, he gives his example first. And again, the best teaching always. Presents an example, a model for students to follow. Teaching is not mere academic transmission of knowledge. Paul refers to Timothy, his son. This is probably a reference to the fact that Paul had converted Timothy. The commentator McLaren says Timothy seems to have been converted on Paul's first visit. That's when he picked him up and picked him up in Lystra. On the second journey, I don't know what McLaren means by his first visit. I don't have the context there, but anyway. My point about quoting McLaren here is that he says Timothy seems to have been converted, which means that we don't know for sure that Paul converted Timothy, but he calls him my son here, and so that tends to make you think that he is Paul's convert. At any rate, whether he's his convert or not, he was very, very close to Paul. He was younger than Paul, and he and Timothy was with him second journey, third journey, back to Jerusalem, back to Rome, after Rome, back to Ephesus. He was with Paul constantly. Now, Paul said, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction. What instruction? He was referring to instructions Paul had previously given in chapter 1 here of the letter. 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul had told Timothy, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. So that's the instruction that Paul's given to, t- to Timothy. You need to stop this heresy in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 1.5. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And that, again, is an example. Paul's teaching was had a goal of love, and he wants Timothy to do the same thing, love. But, of course, in order to show love teaching, which is Christian teaching, you've got to get rid of the heretics, which can be a little bit rough. Now, this is an interesting point because Paul is getting ready to talk about people who have suffered the shipwreck of their faith in verse 19. And these characters, they're Alexander, Hymenaeus, and Philetus. They are called gangrenous, shipwreckers of faith. They have rejected faith. They've rejected a good conscience. Horrible people. So, again, when you're dealing with Christians, you deal with them gently. When you're dealing with heretics, you are Rambo. You stop them. You do what's necessary. Now, Paul said that this instruction that he was given to Timothy is in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, we know that about these prophecies by reading in 1 Timothy 4.14 and also 2 Timothy 1.6. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy, which with the laying on of hands by the council of elders, by the elders. They prophesied over Timothy, Now and, they, and, they, and, the, and the prophecy gave a gift to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift that is in you. Now, there have been many speculations as to what this gift was. Was it his eldership? That's what I tend to think it is. Was it the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, discernment of spirits? I've heard a lot of speculations. We don't know, but I suspect it was his eldership. Don't neglect it. Lead the flock. Be an example to the flock. 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul says this, Therefore I remind you, Timothy, to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul had laid hands on Timothy. That could be baptism of the Holy Spirit. It could be eldership. We don't know. It's also not sure where those, who, who gave those prophecies and, and what was their nature. Because it just said, the verse just says, prophecies previously made about you. It doesn't say who gave the prophecies. Well, here's some options as to what those prophecies were. Here's John Gill's first shot at it. The testimony, good report, that those at Lystra and Iconium made about Timothy. That's non-supernatural. That's just good reputation. That doesn't sound like prophecy to me, folks, so I think that's nuts. Second option, supernatural prophets. In other words, the First Corinthians 14 prophets where I desire that you all prophesy, and when you prophesy, one does not prophesy on top of another, and... When you prophesy, let the others, prophets judge, and all that stuff in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says desire prophecy. That's probably the type of prophecy that prophesied over Timothy. Who knows what the prophecy was, but there was a gift given to Timothy. It could be more particularly, not just prophets in general, but maybe Paul himself had received a prophecy about Timothy and had given it to Timothy. This is Adam Clark's idea. Now here's a non-supernatural option, which I don't agree with. Paul's previous natural advice and direction and exhortation that Paul had given Timothy. That's not prophecy. Well, the way people come up with this is they look at 1 Corinthians 14.3. says this, But the person who prophesies speak to people for edification, speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. Well, prophecy does do that, but that doesn't mean that that covers all the whole range of edification, encouragement, and consolation. Teaching does the same thing, but teaching is not prophecy. Or if I just go up and exhort somebody and encourage them, that does the same thing. But that's not prophecy. So I think that's pretty nutty, too. So it's either Paul or some other prophets that prophesied about Timothy. And Paul wants him to hang on to that. And the reason I think it's elders rather than baptism of the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts or something like that that's instilled into Timothy is because Paul is telling Timothy here to go along with the instruction, to, to act in keeping with the instruction he's giving Timothy, and the instruction he was giving Timothy had to do with the false teachers. Remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. That's teaching ministry which are, and, and eldering ministry, pastoral ministry. So according with the prophecies previously made about you, I assume those prophecies had to do with Timothy as a church leader, as an elder. So he's saying, do what you're supposed to do, get rid of the heretics. Strongly engage in battle. I like that translation of the Homer Christian Study Bible because the other translations that you hear all the time is fight the good fight. Well, after a while, you don't, the NIV has that. Well, fight the good fight, what does that mean? Well, in particular, it's fighting a battle against heretics in a church. That's what the good fight was. And we just completely strip the context out and just say we've got to fight in general. Well, which is okay. It's not the end of the world, but it's, it's kind of a harmless error, but still. Paul is telling them to engage, telling Timothy to engage in battle against the heretics that are threatening to destroy the church at Ephesus. When Paul tells Timothy to engage in battle, it just to strongly engage in battle. It just reminds one of the fact that Christians are constantly in a war. It never stops. It will never stop to the day you die. However, now, we're supposed to be victorious in that battle. That's the good news. But just don't think you can just put it on autopilot and everything's going to be all right. No, as soon as you put it on autopilot, the devil's going to say, Oop, here's somebody I'm going to whack. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't have R&R every now and then. Sometimes you do need R&R. Things go along well. You're not really engaged in a battle. But sooner or later, you've got to get back in the fray. That's just my editorial comment on this. Now, Paul tells Timothy in verse 19 to have faith and a good conscience as he engages strongly in battle. And I would assume that means that he needs to have trust, have faith in God, and he has to have a good conscience when he's fighting the battle. And he's making a hint that the people that Timothy is fighting don't have faith, and they don't have a good conscience. These people don't trust in God, and they are doing it from evil motives, either seduced by the devil or openly in cahoots with the devil. But they're trying to destroy the Christian's faith. Some have rejected these. Rejected what? Faith. They've rejected faith. They've rejected a good conscience. And they have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. So their faith has been shipwrecked. Now we're going to look at what this heresy is in just a minute. But first of all, let's look at the Armenian Calvinist controversy here. The shipwreck of their faith. Oh, you might think. Armenians might think, see there? It's possible to lose your salvation because some have rejected faith. And have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. That's clear, is it not? They've lost their salvation. Well, here's what John Gill, the obstreperous Calvinist, He's Calvinist to his eyeballs. Many people accuse him of being hyper-Calvinist. I don't know whether that's true or not. Here's what he said. Paul was shipwrecked three times. He never died. (laughs) Which is a great response. You know, Paul shipwrecked three times. Did he die? A Christian can have their faith shipwrecked. How many people you know, Christians, that just make stupid decisions and they ruin their life and they're punished. They're chastised by God because God has set up a certain moral order in the universe and in society. And when you go out and Commit adultery or whatever other stupid sinful thing a Christian might do. It doesn't mean they lose their salvation. It means that their life's going to be hell on earth. Their life is shipwrecked. This is not a case to prove the. Um, this is not a verse to prove the Arminian case. Now, when Paul says in verse 18 that these people have rejected these, or verse 19, I'm sorry, when Paul tells Timothy to have faith. Whenever you see faith, you have to see is it subjective or objective. Paul says that Timothy needs to have the grace of faith, he needs to have a subjective belief in God. Or the other option is that it's the objective definition of faith, which is the doctrines of the Christian faith, so that the verse would read like this, Timothy, you need to have the Christian faith. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. I would say it means having a subjective faith, a subjective trust in Jesus. Now, the word faith is used again here in verse 19. Some have rejected these, rejected faith and rejected a good conscience, and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. Now, is that their subjective belief in God? I think so. However, Adam Clark, Jameson, Foster, and Brown seem to think it's objective. It means they've suffered the shipwreck of the Christian faith in their life. Well, okay. However, you want to take that, it doesn't matter. The point is they're shipwrecked. Now, in verse 20, and we'll finish up the chapter here, Paul mentions two of these faith shipwrecked people, these people who have rejected faith in a good conscience. He mentions two of them. Hymenaeus and Alexander are among them. Among whom? Among those who have rejected faith in a good conscience, and among those who have shipwrecked their faith. Hymenaeus and Alexander are among them, and I have delivered them to Satan so they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, Hymenaeus is mentioned also in 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says this, "...and their word was spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them." Now, this assumes that Hymenaeus are the same people, and I assume they are in First and Second Timothy. So in First Timothy, we have two heretics, Hymenaeus and Alexander. In Second Timothy, we have two heretics, Hymenaeus and Philetus. You put them all together, you got Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus are named heretics who are extremely dangerous. Assuming that Hymenes is the same person, by the way, James Foster and Brown says that's very easy to assume, and it is easy to assume. Now who is this Alexander? He could possibly be Alexander the Coppersmith that Paul mentions in Second Timothy four fourteen. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Ooh. Paul saying that God's gonna wreak judgment on one of Paul's enemies? Paul was very confident about God's judgment of evil. And this Alexander the coppersmith, we're not sure, but it's possibly the Jew who was put forward by the Jews in the riot at Ephesus on the third journey. In Acts 19.33, we read this, Then some of the crowd gave Alexander advice when the Jews pushed him to the front. So, motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. Well, whoever this Alexander was, he was a faith shipwrecker. We're going to talk about what their heresy was in just a minute. Paul says that these guys... Hymenaeus and Alexander are to be delivered to Satan. Now, we have some options as to what that means. Could it be excommunication? Gil denies that, and I don't blame him. I deny it too, because only a church can do this. And where's Paul? He's in prison. How is Paul going to excommunicate somebody when he's in prison? We see that excommunication belongs to is a prerogative of a local church. First Corinthians five five. Turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul was telling the Corinthian church to turn the man sleeping with a stepmother, over to Satan. So it could be excommunication. John Gills posits a special apostolic power through which Paul excommunicated Hymenaeus and Alexander by turning them over to Satan. Well, that's speculative. I don't believe it. This is my view of it. He mentally determines that they are of Satan, and he tells everybody about it. That's what he means by delivering them over to Satan. He says, I pronounce, because of my authority, my moral and spiritual authority, not by his ecclesiastical authority. I declare that these people are the devil, and, Timothy, you need to proceed accordingly. Again, Paul was in jail at Rome. He couldn't physically or ecclesiastically do anything, so it has to be a moral type of delivering over to Satan, a moral authority, exemplary type, handing these two heretics to Satan. And he says that when these heretics are delivered to Satan... The purpose was so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. Ooh, now that's how you like to have the devil for your teacher. And Jesus Paul says right here to Timothy, Yeah, you can you can have the devil to teach you. They're gonna be saying, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry we taught that bad doctrine And they were taught not to blaspheme. What they were teaching was blasphemous. So that's another thing. Let me let me put together all the things that Hominius, Alexander, and Philetus in Second Timothy. This is what they were doing. They were gangrenous. Their talk was spreading like gangrene. They rejected faith. They rejected good conscience. They were blasphemers. They were shipwreckers of the faith. Bad guys. Well, what were they teaching? What were they teaching to call out such a from Paul? Well, they were denying the resurrection of the dead. As John Gill says, we look at Second Timothy two seventeen through 18 and this is how we know that. And their word will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have deviated from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are overturning the faith of some. So Paul considered denying the resurrection of the dead is blasphemous, and these people were doing it. Now, hyper heretics today, of whom I've had an unfortunate run-in with about 10 years ago, they almost wrecked a good friend of mine's church. They said all kind of nasty things about me. They sent doctored tapes in the email Saying how associates of mine at conferences had denounced me from the pulpit, I could hear the click, psh, hiss, as the ham-handed editing took place. They wrote nasty articles about me on the internet. I mean, these people—they mean business. They're sometimes called neo hominians because they believe that the resurrection had already taken place, and their their heresy is very subtle, and it takes a lot of studying to deal with it. And, They've got a grain of truth. I'm an orthodox protest myself, but they carry it too far, and they say that the resurrection that took place in 8070. This, of course, could not mean 80, the resurrection had already taken place. This was written before 8070. But still, the idea is the same. They're saying that there's. if you say the resurrection of the body has already taken place before the end of time, that means there's not going to be a resurrection of the body at the end of time. It's some kind of so-called spiritual resurrection, and you end up in the stinking Filthy morass of neo uh, of Hymenean heresy. There's a reason why the resurrection of the dead is in all the three Orthodox creeds: the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed. There's a reason it's in there, is because it's so clearly taught in the Scriptures. If you don't like creeds, well, then read the Bible what does it say right here Second Timothy two seventeen. they said the resurrection has already taken place therefore they are overturning the faith of some they've shipwrecked their word is spreading like gangrene I mean how how much clearer can it be you don't deny the resurrection of the dead if you don't want to be called a blasphemer and if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead read Philippians three twenty one. we will have a body that's transformed into the image into the glory of Jesus' body how about 1 Corinthians 15 over and you know it's clear, folks, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with 1 Timothy chapter 1. In our next audio, we will cover 1 Timothy chapter 2, the main theme of which is to pray for everybody. And in this chapter, there's a famous verse, 1 Timothy 2.12, about I do not allow a man to teach or exercise authority over a woman, which is very fun to talk about in this hyper age of ours where we have women pastors everywhere, but not in churches I go to. So I hope you stay tuned for the next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.